So his work, his word, his witness, those are the three segments of how we've seen the Holy Spirit working in the, the, the uh, process and the journey through Acts. And so we're in those latter stages of the, the book, and so we're at this section where it's his witness. And what that means is the, the Holy Spirit early on was doing a lot of the work himself, and then he turned it over to like the word. The word takes a real prominent place in the, the Luke's design, and now it's into the witness that the, the missionaries, especially Paul, is going out and he's sharing the gospel. And we're going to see this culminating in the next couple of weeks as we finish up this book, how the witness to the truth in the gospel is so incredible, especially as Paul is getting ready to head into Rome under arrest, and he's going to be sharing the gospel. Uh, it's just powerful stuff. So I encourage you to get to, uh, get in the book if you haven't been and uh, just kind of catch up. So where we are in Acts chapter 21 in particular, Paul is about to finish his third missionary journey. And in this, one of the, the unique things he's done is on this journey, he started in Jerusalem, then he trekked up through what is now modern Turkey over into Greece, and he goes back and then comes back down kind of on the coast of southern Turkey and actually takes a ship uh, into the, the what is now uh, would be eastern Jerusalem or eastern Israel area and then finally ends up back in Jerusalem. And so we're seeing this last couple of steps in this journey here in Acts 21 and it's some really, really unique stuff that's occurring in his life. And so we see Paul living with no reserve, no retreat, and no regret. And so I want to um, start by... Uh, sharing this thought. I think one of the incredible things that Paul expresses in his life is this ability to do the will of God with no compromise. And I started thinking about that. And, I, and in particular, I was thinking, how do we live in our era in terms of the will of God? And I'll be honest, I think that most people today, and I'm not going to say that about you, I don't want to get into the Holy Spirit's work in your life, but I think most people today live in a manner that compromises a commitment to the will of God. And <clears throat> you might think, well, I don't at least willingly desire to compromise it if, if we do, but I think there's this pervading, or, uh, overwhelming attitude that challenges and misshapes our perspective on the will of God. Let me tell you what I mean by that. I think most people think this, that God is here for us. Instead of this, that we are here to do his will. So we, we get the order wrong. And we say, oh, wait, we don't really think that. How do we live? How do we pray? Hmm. Okay. Most people think that God is here to bless us. Right? Turn on the TV. Watch some TV evangelists. You give to God, what's he going to do? Give back more. He's going to multiply more. Is that what the scriptures teach? Absolutely not. Okay? So we, we, there are those people that think that God is here to bless us. Here's the flip. And this is the true side. We are here to bless and glorify the Lord. That, that's the real perspective about God's will. And then most people think that God is working to get our agenda done. That we have these desires and we think that God ought to fulfill those desires instead of us having this right attitude that we are here to serve God. And you could easily just go back to the Lord's Prayer, right? That model prayer in, in Matthew. And it begins with that Heavenly Father, uh, that, that approach to Him, that we want His will to be done, right? 
Kevin, you've been teaching on that in youth ministry the last couple weeks. Okay, great stuff. That, that our approach is that we want God's will to be done, not ours. What's His will in heaven is to be done here on earth. And we get that so backwards, don't we? And, and I think this is why. Um, and what, what happens, because of this, most people end up with this quandary. Because if we're trying to get God to do our will, and, and really we've got that reversed in attitude, instead of us submitting and surrendering to His, then we get caught in this perspective, that we feel like God is letting us down, that God's left us when we're facing challenges, when the truth is, does that make sense? Because we're desiring all these things to to go our way when the challenges come. God's going, no, I'm in control of the challenges, and I just want to teach you some things through them. But we're going, we just want out of the challenges. We we want this to be easy. We, We want just a smooth path, and we forget that God is often desiring to work these things in our lives so that we will be transformed into his image or his likeness and he will take control so that he brings the most glory to his name. See, we want it about us instead of him. And so we get that reversed. And so I think this is our biggest struggle. We look at things in in our lives through our lenses, the, the lenses of the earth and the lenses of the moment, Rather, through, rather than through a biblical lens. And I know you guys at Brian, that's like the basic core thing that you get in biblical worldview, right? How do we look at the life through Scripture and live it that way? And I think Paul models this really, really well for us. So let's, uh, because I can say all this stuff, right? But if I say this, it's my theories. I want us to get into Scripture, And I want to see how the Lord really shows us this. So let's look at Acts chapter 21. We're going to read a bunch of scripture this morning. Um, And so have your Bible drill stuff on, um, Bible drill hats on, okay? Um, And we're going to start in Acts 21, verses 1 through 16, okay? You ready? And when we had parted from them and set sail, we came by a straight course to cause and the next day to Rhodes, and from there to Patara. And having found a, a ship crossing to Phoenicia, we went aboard and set sail. When we had come inside of Cyprus, leaving it on the left, we sailed to Syria and landed at Tyre. For there the ship was not, or the, for the ship was to unload its cargo. And having sought out the disciples, we stayed there for seven days, and through the Spirit they were telling Paul not to go on to Jerusalem. When our days there were ended, we departed and went on to our journey, or went on our journey, and they all, with wives and children, accompanied us until we were outside the city, and kneeling down on the beach, we prayed. Isn't that cool? You get the idea? If if you don't get this idea, I really want to encourage you, go back to your your Bible maps in the back. Olivia, you're going to have to get a different Bible. Olivia showed me her sports Bible this week and said, there's no maps. I'm like, junk. No, I'm just kidding. Um, get a map, a Bible with maps, right? Or go online and look up. You can do that, Olivia. You got a phone, right? Your parents let you have a phone? You have a phone that can Google search? You have permission this morning to Google search Bible maps. Paul's third missionary journey, okay? You, you didn't know I was going to give you this kind of privilege and freedom this morning. Congratulations. Your parents are like watching. What, is she really texting somebody? now? <laughs> I'm kidding. So if you look at the course of Paul's third missionary journey, what you see is he travels off the coast, and you see where he is off of Cyprus, and then they land on the beach right there out in Israel, and they stop and they pray, okay? Incredible stuff. Now let's keep going. Um, 
let's see, where was it? There, they return home. Uh, thank you. And they said farewell to, to one another. There's this departure. Then we went on board the ship and they returned home. And when we had finished the voyage from Tyre, we arrived at Ptolemais and we greeted the brothers and stayed with them for one day. On the next day, we departed and came to Caesarea and we entered the house of Philip, the evangelist, who was one of the seven and stayed with him. He had four unmarried daughters who prophesied. While we were staying for many days, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea. And coming to us, he took Paul's belt and bound his own feet and hands and said... Thus says the Holy Spirit. This is how the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. When we heard this, we and the people there urged him not to go up to Jerusalem. Then Paul answered, What are you doing, weeping and breaking my heart? For I am ready not only to be imprisoned, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. And since he would not be persuaded, we ceased and said, let the will of the Lord be done. After these days, we got ready and went up to Jerusalem. And some of the disciples from Caesarea went with us, bringing us to the house of Manson and of Cyprus, an early disciple with whom we should lodge. Okay, so a whole lot of stuff is happening right there. But you, you get this idea. Paul is facing a challenge. And he's got this quandary about how to face this challenge successfully. And here's what's so amazing to me. There is this incredible tension. You get this, look back at verses 13 and 14. Hear Paul's heart in these verses. He said, then Paul answered, what are you doing weeping and breaking my heart? For I am ready not only to be imprisoned, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. So Paul's got this willingness to do whatever God requires of him. And I don't think this is a sense of foolish martyrdom either. I think Paul has just been discerning and walking with the Lord, and he knows that there's this impending outcome that's going to be really, really tough, but he is going to go the distance with the Lord, whatever it takes, because he's got a desire to get to Jerusalem that's been implanted in him by the Holy Spirit. And he knows ultimately he's going to end up in Rome able to share the gospel. And he's got this incredible vision. But the disciples with him are giving him a lot of grief saying, don't go, don't go, don't go. And he's being prophesied over. And this guy Agabus shows up and takes Paul's belt off of him, ties up Paul's hands and said, Who, he's going to be in prison in Jerusalem. If that happened to me, what would be the first thing I'm doing? I am not going to Jerusalem, I'll just admit. I would be like, oh my, what's about to happen? I don't want to be in jail. Paul, however, is much stronger in his faith than me. And I hope that I can get there one day, to be honest. But I, I'd be freaked out. But Paul is very, very committed to this. Now let's look at verse 14. He says, and since he would not be persuaded, what did, they do? What did the disciples do? So this is Luke writing for the, from the perspective of the disciples and all those following in, in, in the journey with Paul, and he says, we ceased and said, let the will of the Lord be done. See, so the, Paul and the disciples were in this tension. Paul's going, I know I'm going to Jerusalem. Everybody's prophesied. I get it. I'm going to be in, imprisoned. And they're going, don't, don't go. And they're going, if you don't go, then you don't go to prison. And so they finally say, you know what, we're going to cease and we're going to let the will of the Lord be done. Paul's been there already. He's been surrendered to this well. And so there's this conclusion that they finally reach where they're in unity about what's going to happen. Now, does that make it easy? I don't think so. 
But here's what I want you to get. Paul lives with this sense of no reserve. I think this is a great statement on the screen, okay? Because I'm trying to get the best of all these thoughts together and put them on the screen for you. What does no reserve mean? It's the ability, an unrivaled ability to surrender to the Lord in difficult moments. I want you to think about that for just a second. I started the prayer time this morning with this. Every one of us is going to face some kind of challenge or difficult moment in our life where we're going to be required to either surrender in the circumstances to the ways of the world, if you will, or surrender rightly to Christ. And we're going to be held accountable for how we respond. Are we going to be people that live with an unrivaled ability to surrender to the Lord in difficult moments. Let me even say this, because I I thought about this in particular regarding Paul. He's doing one of the greatest things he could ever do. It's not like he was just going through life, you know, just through the normal routine. He is on missionary journey number three, and it's been a long one, and it's, gonna, it's, it's brought tons of impact to people. He's left leaders behind after years in churches. He's still going forward with ministry. He's got great vision. It is an incredibly important event. And even in the middle of doing the greatest things for God that we could possibly ever do, there's going to be challenges that we face, and we're going to be required to continue to live with an unrivaled surrender to the Lord. Do you, do you get that? So you don't just sit there and pat yourself on the back and go, well, I'm living for the Lord. Hey, I'm a pastor. Way to go, Matt. <laughs> I, don't, I don't have to face challenges. Nuh-uh. Even in the midst of the best things that you and I can do for the Lord, we will face challenges and our there's going to be a call for us to continue to live with an unrivaled surrender for him and to him. So what was Paul doing? If you don't recall this, what he was actually doing on that missionary journey was trying to raise funds for the church. He he was going around to all these Gentile churches throughout that Gentile region asking for an offering so he could take it back to the struggling church in Jerusalem to encourage them to help and the impact of the gospel. So even in the midst of doing the greatest things for the Lord that we could do, there are going to be those kind of challenges. This led me to something. um, We're preparing, and you guys don't necessarily know this, but um, in the summer we're going to be in 1 and 2 Peter. And I've been trying to read through those in kind of a devotional heartbeat um, the last couple months, just letting that soak in my life so when I get to really studying for sermon prep, it's doing a different work in me. And so I was reading in 1 Peter 3, verses 13 through 17. I want you to turn there. Listen, listen to this, okay? I'll give you just a second to get there. 1 Peter 3. And this, this jumped out at me as I'm doing the study in Acts 21. You there? Here we go. 1 Peter 3, 13 through 17. Now, who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? You hear that? Have, you're, you're doing God's will. Who is there going to harm who to harm you in the midst of that? That's what Peter's question is. But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, what does he say? You will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. 
But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. Boom. Here Luke is capturing these events historically and telling us what's going on. And Peter, another disciple, is saying the exact same thing from a didactic or teaching perspective. Does that make sense? It's that you're going to suffer. We're going to do these things. But we need to make sure that we are recognizing it. When those we face these challenges, God is doing something, and we need to stay after the good. Now look at, at 1 Peter 4, verses 1 through 2. I think this even like nails it down a little bit um, more definitively. Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. <laughs> Christ suffered, I'm going to suffer. I need to arm myself with that thinking. Let's look at what he says next. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. Whoa, that's a pretty bold statement. Keep going. So as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but how? For the will of God. So, so if we're going to have this mind that Christ suffered, we too ought to suffer, how, what does that produce? A strength for us to live according to the will of God. See, suffering, and when we face suffering and challenges, it is so God can produce a Christ-like perspective, attitude, demeanor, quality, character, value, list of things can go on and on and on. Motivation, right, that looks like Jesus. No reserve. No reserve. See, so when we live with no reserve saying, hey, I don't want limits on what I'm dealing with. I'm just going to say I'm trusting God. It's not going to be, well, God, I'm willing to go this far. That's the reserve. That's the limit. No, it's no reserve. I'm sold out to Christ. I'm going to do what he desires. I'm going to follow his will, and his will is going to be preeminent for me. You get it? I, I, uh... Love this. My youth pastor had a huge, I know it sounds weird, but it's a big carpet. It was like a four by six carpet that on it he had had embroidered or, or however he did it with carpet. It's not embroidered, I don't know. Designed. There's a word, okay? Design. The words Christ first. Simple, right? What, what is the cry for Brian? Christ above all. That's biblical. Is Christ first? Is our, our, our lives reflecting that, that motto, that biblical theme, Christ above all, that, that our lives are so devoted to him that every challenge we face, everything that we do, it's all right because Christ is there, because God is present with me in everything I go through. In every detail of life, he is sovereign. He is working out his will. And I'm going to respond in obedient love so that he is continually exalted. That's it. That, that's what Paul exemplified. Whether it be in prison, whether it be later a snake bite, it doesn't, it doesn't matter how he suffers because he knows that his Lord is sovereign and he is working in him 
all of his plans and he can relinquish himself with no reserves. I'm not going to limit anything to Christ being above all. Now here's the, the second part of this. I, and I want to flip this term just a little bit with the no reserve. See, I think sometimes we live with the reserve, well, I want to hang on to the sin. See, I, I, I want God's will, but, but it, I'm going to put myself in this tension, and I want to reserve some sinful rights and privileges uh, on my own. And so what we really do in that, clinging to those things, and it could be, you know, little sins that we call respectable, but what we really do when we cling to those sins is we limit God's ability to move in our lives. And so we don't really live with no reserve because we want to cling to those sins. And, and that's where I think the, the whole point is God's greatest goal for us is our holiness. And I'm going to say that a couple times through this. It's not about our happiness. And that's where we get it all wrong. You go back to those couple things I said early where the world looks in, and we struggle with this ability to do God's will because we want him doing our stuff. Why? Because we want to be happy. We don't want to be made holy. God's desire for us is holiness. If we could get that right, then we wouldn't cling to the sin. There'd be no reserve and, and hold on to it. We'd be sold out for him because he's constantly trying to make us holy. And that ho holiness leads to the greatest blessings. And that's what we got into this morning is if God's goal is for our holiness and we end up in heaven with him in, in once we're glorified, what do we really get? Think about this. We get the benefit of being with God. And I'll be honest, we got into this little dialogue this morning about what God's goal. Is it holiness? Is it joy? I don't know. I could parse that stuff all day. But I think this, when we get our holiness right, the joy is there because we're in right relationship with God. And I, this kind of came into my thought this morning in our prayer time. In that statement that we all want to hear, and Jesus told us that, that phrase, well done, good and faithful servant. That's holiness and that's joy. There's that coupling of those things. But if we don't live in a manner that, that accepts the challenges of God, that he's working in us, his holiness, then we are thwarting his will. We're going against it. And we lose sight of that. So look at, look at this. Um, well, Sherilyn, you'll have to tell Mike I did this. Mike is the one, Mike Courtney, a couple years ago, he taught on that very principle that too many times that we want God to be about our happiness and not our holiness. And I think that this is certainly what, what this passage brings about. So let me, let me read something to you because I, I really wanted to, to, to capture something. Here's our problem or the problem for us. If we are focused on the storms that bring challenges and we focus on our limited happiness because our perspective's misaligned. You get that? Focus on the storm. Focus on the storm makes me unhappy because my perspective's misaligned. When it comes to experiencing God's sanctifying work for our holiness, we lose sight of what he's doing, and then our joy is limited, and then what do we want to do? We want to retreat. I'm not giving you all any of these slides. I'm sorry. We want to retreat. Or we want to escape the challenges rather than experience the growth that God desires to bring through the challenge. You get that? And then what we do is we live with a reserve on the amount of struggle we are willing to endure. You get that? 
we live with the amount of struggle we're willing to endure by grumbling and complaining against God. But see, Paul lived with no retreat, didn't he? He, he, his entire ministry was intentional and unwavering. So much so that when he had that encounter, what we read in verse 13 and 14 with the other disciples, they finally said, we get it. Let's allow the Lord's will to be done. And he modeled that well. So no reserve leads to no retreat. And then that leads to no regret. Okay? No regrets. Here's what's interesting. When we have no regrets, I think that happens when we pay attention to the details so that those who are impacted are affirmed in their faith. That includes us. Okay, so let's, let's do this. Let's turn back to Acts chapter 21. If you're like me, my Bible is still open to 1 Peter. So Acts chapter 21. We're going to pick up and read verses 17 through 26, I think. Yes. Okay, so when he had come to Jerusalem, the brothers received us gladly. On the following day, Paul went in with us to James and all the elders were present. After greeting them, he related one by one. You might underline that. Okay? Y'all think I'm long-winded. Imagine this church meeting. Paul had been on this missionary journey for years, and he relates to them one by one the things that God had done among the Gentiles through his journey. That was a long time. We knew that Paul had already preached late into the evening when that young guy fell out of the window. We didn't read that a couple weeks ago, but that was in Acts 19, if I remember right. So he, he's long-winded, and he is relating these details one by one to them. Now, picking up um, in verse 19, uh, I'm sorry, verse 20. And when they had heard it, they glorified God, and they said to him, You see, brother, how many thousands there are among the Jews of those who have believed. They are all zealous for the law. And they've been told about you that you teach all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, telling them not to circumcise their children or walk according to our customs. What then is to be done? They will certainly hear that you have come. Do therefore what we tell you. We have four men who are under a vow. Take these men and purify yourself along with them and pay their expenses so that they may shave their heads. Thus all will know that there is nothing in, that, in what they have been told about you, but that you yourself also live in observance of the law. But as for the Gentiles who have believed... We have sent a letter with our judgment that they should abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols and from blood and from what has been strangled and from sexual immorality. Then Paul took the men and the next day he purified himself along with them and went into the temple giving notice when the days of purification would be fulfilled and the offering presented for each of them. So here's what Paul's doing. He uh, is living in such a way that everyone around him is able to identify that he is a believer, that he's glorifying God. Now, here's what's really interesting about this whole scene as these, the, the uh, James and the elders gather and they hear this testimony. What they're, con they're uh, struggling with is these thousands of Jews are coming to Christ, but they're saying Paul's teaching something different that the people don't have to observe the law, especially the Gentiles. 
Well, he is teaching that essentially because in what he's identified is all the law has been satisfying Christ. And they don't need to worry about foods that they're eating or the days of worship or the, the issue of circumcision. But the Jews are saying, but if you teach these things, then you're not really acting like a Jew. And so, so Paul says, look, here's what I'm going to do. I am going to comply with you. I'm going to rec- uh, go in and I'm going to spend this time in the ceremonial cleansing because I'm a Jew, rightly, and that's appropriate for me. And so he lives in a manner that is with no regrets for the Jews and one that is in no regrets for the Gentiles because what ultimately does the, the church here conclude again? And I say again because they've already done this in Acts 15. They say the exact same things about food sacrifice to idol, about the days of worship, about the issue of blood. They don't go and impose any more standards, legal standards, on the Gentiles. Now, I'm not going to get into this lengthy discussion, but I want to encourage you to read, especially if you struggle with these kind of concepts. And I'm going to be really bold here. We've had a family, and there's some impact in our church life that's occurred in the last several years about people coming back and trying to impose the law of the Old Testament on us as believers and say that we have to upkeep, hold these laws of dietary laws and all these other things that go on that we're worshiping on the wrong day because we're worshiping on Sunday. Those things. Things are not in accord with Scripture. You can read Romans chapter 8. You can read Romans chapter 14. And you can read 1 Corinthians chapter, uh, chapters 8 through 10. And those things clearly explain why we are not to go back to Jewish law and uphold those things, that those things are satisfied in Christ. Now, let me jump to one of those to help you get that. Look over at 1 Corinthians chapter, chapters 8 through 10. I'm going to read a couple highlights here. First of all, 8, 1 through 4. Paul writes to the church, he says, Now concerning food offered to idols, we know that all of us possess knowledge. This knowledge puffs up. Where do we not need to land in terms of these kind of law issues? We don't need to be prideful. What does he say next? But love builds up. Love is the key. Love the Lord your God and love one another. That summarizes the law. That's what Jesus taught. Let us love God and let us love one another. He continues, if anyone imagines that he knows something, he does not yet know as he ought to know. Don't think you know it all. That's essentially what it says, okay? But if anyone loves God, he is known by God. Therefore, as to eating of food offered to idols, we know that an idol has no real existence. And that there's no one, there's no God but one. So, so I, I, have y'all been to these Chinese restaurants where they have the Buddha God sitting there, the Buddha idol sitting there? And I say God, the little G. I've always wondered this thing. Do they pray over our food and offer that before they cook it or, you know, and, and on their daily routine? And that's presented to an idol and that you're trying to do something. I'm like, I go back to this scripture. It doesn't matter. I don't care what's happened with that food. It's just food. And guess what I'm going to do when I pray over it? I'm going to thank God for it because I pray to the one living God, the true living God. And that their prayer meant nothing because that idol is just some little thing sitting on the, the counter. It's, it's worthless. It doesn't mean anything. And that's what Paul's getting at. Let us worship the true God. And all this other stuff and people, what they do is, is in vain because that God is not real. But what we do in relationship with the one true and living God is real. So let's just enjoy him. Let's love him well. Now look over at 1 Corinthians 9. 
another short passage, verse 20. Here's where Paul really shows his humility. He says, to the Jews, I became as a Jew in order to win Jews. To those under the law, I became as one under the law, though not being myself under the law. Isn't that interesting? Here's a Jew, he's saying, I became under the law, though myself, I'm not under the law. (laughs) You get the point? He's saying, we don't have to live according to the law because I'm free in Christ. Now look at what he continues, that I might win those under the law. To those outside the law, the Gentiles, I became as one outside the law, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ. What's the supreme law? The law of Christ. And he says this, that I might win those outside the the law. Verse 22, to the weak I became weak, that I might win the weak. I become all things to all people, that that by all means I might save some. I do it all for the sake of the gospel that I may share with them in its blessings. So what is Paul saying here? Let me go back to the the idea in Acts. He's saying, I want to live with no regrets. I don't want to be a stumbling block to anyone. So I'm going to relate to people in such a manner that they recognize that God is my God and I'm free in Christ and I want to make the most of Christ and the gospel is going to impact them because I'm living with no regrets for Christ's sake. And for them to know Christ. So I'm going to talk about the law when I need to. I'll relate to it appropriately. When I don't need to, I'm not going to impose it on anybody. Because it's not necessary. Because in Christ is freedom. Does that make sense? So living with no regrets. Look at one more passage. 1 Corinthians 9, uh, I'm sorry, 10, 23. 1 Corinthians 10, 23. He says this, All things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful, but not all things build up. Let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor. Eat whatever is sold in the meat market without raising any question on the ground of conscience. For the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. If any uh, one of us, I'm sorry, if any one of the unbelievers invites you to dinner and you're disposed to go eat, um, I'm sorry, let me back up. If, if one of the unbelievers invites you to dinner and you're disposed to eat, go Eat whatever is set before you without raising any question on the ground of conscience. But if someone says to you, this has been offered in sacrifice, then do not eat it for the sake of the one who informed you and for the sake of conscience. I do not mean your conscience, but his. For why should my liberty be determined by someone else's conscience? If I partake with thankfulness, why am I denounced because of that for which I give thanks? So, whether you eat or drink, whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. We so often take that that statement out of context, that whatever you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all for the glory of God. It's really about our relationships with one another, that we would live with no regrets in relationships so that people are impacted by the gospel. So I want to emphasize this. And this is where Romans 8 comes into play big time. We do not need to enter into judgment on one another. That's the key. Paul is saying, don't judge. Live according to the will of God where Christ offers freedom and don't be judgmental of one another. But if someone is judging you and they're a weaker brother and you're causing them to sin in your freedom, don't do it. I'm going to be really, really bold here for a second. I've said this from the pulpit in the past, but I want to emphasize it because I do this every time I do membership class, and um, or I say class, we meet with families for membership, and we address this. Our church has a, uh, a position about alcohol in particular and uh, illegal substances. 
we don't believe that, and I don't think the scriptures teach that we should be required to abstain from alcohol. It actually says that some wine is good for your stomach. It says don't be drunk with wine, but instead be filled with the Spirit. We could have read don't drink alcohol because you need to be filled with the Spirit. That's not what it says, okay? So, so the, the scriptures clearly identify that there's liberty in Christ. But here's the struggle that I have, especially with social media. I'm going to do a poll. I love straw polls. How many of you have some kind of social media access where you post a picture, be it Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, MySpace, is it ancient, um, am I, uh, Snapchat, something else? Raise your hands high. Keep them up there high. Okay? I'm going to ask the reverse. Who doesn't have some kind of social media? Blessings upon you all. Okay? <laughs> Yes. Here's the problem that I, ha I struggle with. For those of you that don't have those social media things, you, you are of the wisest of you. For uh, the others of us that have entered in the social media realm, what happens is we will see posts and things out there that will cause people to stumble. And I'll give you the, the one that bugs me the most is we, because we have freedom in our church to partake of alcohol, there's some people that will at times celebrate the alcohol. I want to encourage you. There's people out there that will see, read that post and or see the alcohol on that picture, and they will go, oh, how can they be a Christian and do that? They, they will struggle with those things. Paul would say, don't put a stumbling block in front. I would encourage you with this. Don't celebrate alcohol. Don't put the post out there with the beer bottle or the wine glass because there's going to be somebody out there that looks at that that is, doesn't understand our freedom in Christ. And they're going to see that and it's going to cause them to trip. Well, how, how do they love the Lord if they've got alcohol in, involved in their life? I'll be honest. If you have alcoholics around you, you need to keep the bottles away. You don't need to uh, cause them to stumble because that's a, a stumbling block for them in a very, very difficult way. And so celebrating those things can really harm them. But here's the thing. I, would, I wish that we were such a culture of believers that what we posted on social media continually, how we lived our lives verbally, was to celebrate our freedom in Christ and who he is, so that we live in a way without regrets that people are continually pointed to him. What, remember what I said? Christ first, Christ above all. And, and then that we are, there's no regrets to our lifestyles, that there's no reserve about Christ being first, that, that there's no retreat from the things of the world, and we live in such a way that people are drawn to Christ. I know we have the freedom, but Christ should be first. Christ should be first. And if you're posting those things or you're living in a way that is um, compromising the benefit that Christ brings and what we've celebrated all morning is the power of his grace, then we're causing people to stumble. And we don't need to do that. So, so let me try to draw all these bunches of things back in. Number one, 
we're all going to face challenges, aren't we? And what is the, the reason that those challenges are there? Our holiness. God is trying to work in us a holiness that reflects Him so that we will ultimately experience joy. And if we're focused on our happiness instead of our holiness, we won't face challenges successfully. And so we need to live with no reserve so that when we are living with no reserve, we don't retreat from the things of God, but we pursue Him wholeheartedly so that as we count on the details, the one-by-ones, we can say we've lived with no regrets and Christ is exalted. Now, I'll be honest. I can blow it. And right now I'm sitting convicted about a way I blew it last night. And when I was dealing with it, I went, I'm blowing it, I'm blowing it. Sin. I got angry over my stupid dog tearing something up. <laughs> we all shaking your heads laughing like I'm some kind of idiot for it. Y'all have gotten it mad too. You just didn't see how mad I got. Yeah. Yeah, you can relate. Is that what it is? Okay. Why we have stupid beasts? Well, I know God told us to care for the animals of the world. I give to, yeah, I'm trying to rule over this little miniature dachshund that destroys everything in our home. I'm not joking. She's eating a hole this big in her kennel, and she attacked my son's backpack and destroyed an $80 backpack last night. I was not happy. I've threatened to put her to sleep. That's how angry I was. I'm foolish. I get it. It's a regret. I'm being honest and transparent because it was a challenge. And you don't think that the message was playing over my head last night as I'm going to bed going, i got to go teach this in integrity. It stinks. Because the challenge of that little demon dog was over my head last night. I'm repenting right now publicly. Y'all pray for me. I'm all, I'm for real. I don't, I don't think she's possessed. I think she is the demon. <laughs> she's not spiritual being anyhow, man. Gosh, I'm getting into really rich theology stuff now, Sherilyn. No, but in all seriousness, don't we all face those challenges? And I know it's a simple, silly thing. But the, the truth is, it is every day for every one of us. And I, I last night seriously walked through this message, how am I going to try to preach today? And I've had to deal with my attitude and my actions. And it stinks. But I'll tell you this, I want Christ first. And I don't want to live with, with regrets in front of my family, my kids, people that are in my house. Oh my goodness. It's It's for real. It's for real. And it's for the gospel's sake. It's for the glory of God. It's not about Matt Warren or the Warren family or the stupid dog. It's about Christ and what he's trying to teach me. And he's still, even in that, trying to teach me how to respond. Why did I get angry? What am I? And i got to process all that. So that's my confession. How about you? Where are you hanging on to some sin? Where, where are you... Where is the Lord trying to shape you? How, what maybe circumstances? For me, it's the demon dog. But yours might be way more difficult than that. 
But I shared this this morning. There's a great line in a caveman's call song. And I related this. Russ loves Psalm 23, and I talked to him about this. Valleys fill first. Valleys fill first. The Lord's grace will come into the valleys where you're challenged, and he will fill you up, and he will wet you, and he will satisfy your thirst, and you'll get green there in the depths of what you're struggling with. So don't think that the challenges are there to make you miserable. They're there to reveal your heart when you blow it like me. They're there to help you walk rightly with the Lord and depend upon Him so that you can live like Paul did. With no reserve, no retreat, and no regrets. And how many people need us to be that way? kids, maybe it's our spouse, maybe it's a co-worker, maybe it's a, a fellow student, maybe it's a friend, I don't know. But the Lord is trying to refine you, to make you holy. How will you respond to partner with Him as He's trying to accomplish His will in your life?